From CPR News in Colorado Springs, this is Colorado Matters. Film producer Harvey Weinstein will be sentenced next week in New York. Today, a Colorado woman who says she was subjected to his inappropriate sexual advances, Tommy Ann Roberts is now a professor who studies the objectification of women. Being seen this way makes you start to see yourself this way. You become preoccupied with how you look. And preoccupation means that you have fewer cognitive resources to attend to other things you might want to be attending to. Then, giving Governor Polis emergency powers to respond to coronavirus. Plus, Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers on growth, policing, and Olympic City, USA. And a storied synagogue in Trinidad. We're trying to reach out to as many people as we can so that it becomes even more significant, not only to Jews, but to non-Jews. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sentencing for film producer and convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein is set for next week. He could get up to 29 years in prison. We want to check back in with a Colorado woman who says she had a run-in with Weinstein. Tommy Ann Roberts is a psychology professor here in the Springs at Colorado College. I didn't want her to have to rehash yet again what happened, so let's start with a little tape from the first time we spoke. Roberts was an aspiring actor in New York City. This was in the summer of 1984. She was waiting tables on the side, and Weinstein walked into the restaurant and offered her an audition at his apartment. She figured other people would be there, but when she showed up, it was just him, naked, in a bathtub. She remembers being frozen in terror. It's hard when you're 20 years old and you are confronted with a situation like that. The only way I thought I could get out, of course, was to sort of sweet talk my way out, to blame my own self, to say something like, maybe I'm not cut out for this kind of thing. Uh, Maybe I'm a bit too prudish, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't occur to you in a situation like that that you can just kind of scramble. You know, you, you think back on it and you think, man, I should have told that person what for. Hmm. Uh, He asked you to take your top off. You did Mm -hmm. not. Uh, I think at one point you might have uttered the word sorry to him. uh, I think I did. (laughs) He explained to me at the time, of course, that surely there would be some nudity scenes in the movie. And if I wasn't comfortable um, with nudity in front of him, how would I ever be in front of the camera? Uh, And that's probably when I said, I'm sorry. (laughs) Again, today, Roberts is a psychology professor at CC who studies sexual objectification. She's on sabbatical and joined me from Australia. Professor, welcome back. It's good to be here. To be clear, you didn't pursue legal action. You weren't a party to this trial in which Weinstein was acquitted of the most serious charges, including predatory sexual assault. But what are your hopes for sentencing? Well, you know, gosh, I am in Sydney, Australia right now on sabbatical, and last night I happened to go to the Sydney Opera House and see the opera Don Giovanni, which is basically the story of Harvey Weinstein. And I had several friends say, well, I hope he meets a similar fate, a descent into hell, which is what Don Giovanni faces. And I would not say that I hope that Harvey Weinstein faces a descent into hell, but I certainly hope that he is given the maximum sentence possible. And that could be as much as 29 years in prison. Yes. Yeah. Does this feel like closure? And is there such a thing as closure? 
I'm sure it feels like closure for Mimi Halehi and Jessica Mann and Annabella Scoria and the six witnesses who testified. But I think it also, oddly, just like a commencement ceremony, I think it feels like a closure, but also the beginning in our public's understanding of the sexual assault, sexual harassment, and sexual objectification of women by powerful men. So on some level, knowing that we're now going to move on to the trial in Los Angeles, on some level, this also feels like a beginning. And let me just be clear that the guilty verdict came in New York, and he faces charges in L.A. as well. Yes. Yeah. Have, Have you ever heard from Harvey Weinstein? Like, has he ever reached out? Oh, goodness, no. 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 Oh, my gosh, no. I wonder whether he ever did so to some of the women who ended up signing non-disclosure agreements or so on, whether or not any of those cases involved anything like an apology. But no, I doubt Harvey Weinstein has ever reached himself out toward any of the now coming up on close to 100 victimized. No. You know, what struck me about your story the first time we spoke is that you were able to walk away, but you were clear that that did not make you some sort of hero, that you think a lot of women just didn't feel they could make that choice. Right. I think that's exactly what we learned from some of the testimony here. Don Dunning is an example of a witness who, you know, was told, here, I will sign these papers that will get you amazing access to the kind of work you want to do in Hollywood if you agree to a threesome with me. And she was able to walk away, right? Now, Annabella Scoria was not able to walk away. And indeed, she was very young, um, acting in the show The Sopranos. Uh, I think she didn't tell anyone, perhaps Mira Sorvino, some 20 years later, that this had happened to her. So what this trial has helped us see is how complicated these cases are. And back when the story was breaking, as I said to you, it began to sort of sound like some women were heroic in being able to to get out of that room, right, and turn to something different in their life. Other women were unable to for any number of reasons, and they are no less heroic than those who could leave, Hmm. in my view. So your research in Australia, I understand you're, you're giving these kind of tracking devices to women to help them track what? Yes. After I left Harvey Weinstein's apartment and tossed my acting aspirations in the garbage, I carried on, got my degree Uh, my bachelor's degree from Smith College, and then went on to graduate school. And I have spent the bulk of my career studying and teaching about the sexual objectification of girls and women and the consequences of a culture that convinces girls and women that their sexualized appearance is the most valuable thing about them. And so here in Australia, some colleagues of mine and I did a diary study in Melbourne where we had women fitted with a smartphone app. And for one week, they kept track of direct experiences of objectifying treatment, being ogled, being catcalled, being whistled at, 
And more than 65% of women were targets of this kind of treatment at least once in the less than a week time period that we fitted them with the smartphone app. Did that number surprise you? Of course it didn't. It didn't surprise me. I've been doing this work for a long time. (laughs) But I think what I love about this study is that it has what we would say in the scientific field, ecological validity. It's a real world study. We're not bringing participants into a laboratory and having them try on swimsuits and think about how that makes them feel, which is things we've done, yes. In this case, it's people out in their world living their lives. And so 65% of women being targets of sexually objectifying treatment at least once in a week was not surprising to me, no. I think another finding from that particular study that was important here is women reported becoming very preoccupied with their physical appearance far more when they had been targeted by this objectifying treatment than when they had not. Being seen this way makes you start to see yourself this way. You become preoccupied with how you look. You become worried about it. And preoccupation of any kind means that you have fewer cognitive resources to attend to other things you might want to be attending to. You're not looking around at the beautiful sights around you. You're pulled into a state of heightened self-consciousness, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And think of the sort of brain drain of that. Think of what we're losing when we call attention to girls' and women's appearance. What we're losing is their own capacity to be fully absorbed in their life. That's fascinating perspective because it shows you that there is a, a real loss, right? It's the loss of potential. It's, it's the loss of what could have been yeah. if energy were yes. directed elsewhere. Absolutely. And, and, and you must, as an educator, think about that with the young people that you're around. I mean, teens and 20-somethings, who, by the way, are the age approximately, that you were when you met Harvey Weinstein. I mean, I I just wonder if you look at them through the filter of your own experience, also through the filter of that research, and think, I hope this hasn't happened to you, or, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I think about it all the time. I'm working with colleagues and collaborators on a social media fast for preteen and teen girls. One of the things that happens when we compel girls to see themselves this way is that they actively participate in the project of self-objectification. And they post sexy selfies in the hopes of getting likes. That's the currency of a teen girl's life, getting likes for how sexy you look in your selfie. And again, I imagine and I, and I worry tremendously about the loss of the potential of those girls in terms of the amount of preoccupation with their appearance. And we're finding with our social media fast that just three days of deleting apps like Instagram and Pinterest and Snapchat and TikTok from their cell phones, three days, we're finding significant improvements in self-esteem and significant improvements in self-compassion and significant decreases in the kinds of things you do when you're self-objectifying. So decreases in checking your appearance all the time, decreases in feelings of body shame. Square this for me, though, with the fundamental truth, right? That young people are 
coming into their own sexually and that attraction is certainly a part of everyday life, right? I like to I like to be told, Ryan, you look nice today. Yes. So it's all very complicated. Isn't it? Yes, it is. I think the problem here is the following. It doesn't matter how sexy or how unsexy someone appears. What matters is if the way they appear is the only thing that determines the successful outcomes of their life. It's wonderful to receive positive feedback about our appearance. But if positive feedback about my appearance is only given if I meet a certain very narrow cultural standard of what appearance should be, it should be white, it should be youthful, it should be smooth-skinned, it should be sexy. If I can't meet that appearance standard, woe to me, right? But secondly, if that's the only thing that will deem me a successful member of a social group, that's the catastrophe in my view. Shouldn't there be all sorts of other ways that I also get to receive positive feedback about who I am and what I can contribute? Well, Professor, I understand that you will be flying back to the United States to work with Kotex, the feminine hygiene product brand. Yes. Well, as a matter of fact, my work over all these years has brought me to an awareness of the ways in which girls and women develop a tremendous amount of shame and even disgust toward their own body's healthy physical functioning as a consequence of the sexually objectifying culture. So if we are compelled to remain sexy and attractive 24-7, Hmm. Things like periods certainly get in the way of that. But our periods, of course, they're a wellness indicator. They're a vital sign. If we have a healthy body, then we have a healthy menstrual cycle. And so I have worked in the past with Kotex and I'm now returning to continue to work on a big anti-stigma campaign. I'm really proud of Kotex for getting on board with the idea that we don't only need to push products on girls and women. We also need to push the culture to reduce the stigma that comes with the menstruating body, sort of bringing the menstrual cycle out of the closet and saying, guess what? It turns out girls and women have periods. And maybe, just maybe, influencing the men in their lives, if there are men in their lives, to have sort of the same openness and lack of silence around this. Absolutely. You know, if it's no problem for me to uh, pull out my chapstick from my purse and, and put some chapstick on my lips, it shouldn't be a problem for me to pull out a tampon and say, excuse me, I need to go to the restroom. And I think that to the extent that we can begin to reduce this stigma, pull periods out of the closet, as I say, then imagine the greater closeness that the men and boys in girls' and women's lives could have to us with a deeper understanding of the ways our bodies actually work, our bodies, our true bodies, not the bodies that the um, 24-7 media feed is giving us, not the Kardashian bodies, our bodies. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you.
Tomi Ann Roberts is a psychology professor at Colorado College on sabbatical in Australia. She says Harvey Weinstein made inappropriate sexual advances towards her in 1984. The film producer is scheduled to be sentenced March 11th. Back in a moment, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Public radio is flourishing across the country and here in Colorado. Hi, I'm Abigail Beckman, Morning Edition host on KRCC in Colorado Springs. And I'm Mike Lamp, your Morning Edition host here on CPR News. KRCC is partnering with Colorado Public Radio. With our new partnership, you'll get a greater focus on Colorado's issues from both the KRCC and CPR newsrooms. And you'll hear it from Wyoming to New Mexico and all across the state with a new coordinated weekday schedule on CPR News and KRCC. See the details at CPR.org. They're working to give Governor Jared Polis expanded power to respond to COVID-19. The novel coronavirus is now confirmed as of this morning in 16 states, including Utah, Arizona, and Nebraska, all of which, of course, are quite close to Colorado. CPR News investigative reporter Ben Marcus is tracking the state's preparations. And Ben, what do we know about this emergency power response? Uh, so yesterday, a group uh, with the title, I hope I get this right, the Governor's Expert Emergency Epidemic Response Committee, uh, they call themselves GERC, uh, they met yesterday to begin outlining some of the powers that the governor might invoke in the, in the event that COVID-19 spreads within Colorado. So these are draft executive orders that the governor could sign that would give him the authority to do everything from canceling public events, closing public buildings, even seizing medicines from pharmacies. Seizing medicines from pharmacies, like martial law? Yeah, so again, none of this has happened yet, and there's a good chance that none of it will happen. But the General Assembly has given the governor pretty wide powers if he declares an emergency declaration. And it should be said that they're picking and choosing from the powers that he can use. Like, for instance, he could even suspend the sale of alcohol or firearms. And uh, they're not contemplating that in these drafts right now. Has this sort of thing been invoked before? What's the history here? Uh, Not in this most recent iteration of powers that kind of deal with a pandemic illness. Um, We can find disaster declarations for floods, fire, snow. Um, Emergency powers were invoked 100 years ago in Colorado for Spanish flu. Uh, They closed some schools, but they joked yesterday that the bars remained open. Okay. (laughs) What else would these emergency powers allow the governor to do, Ben? So he could order individuals or entire buildings to be quarantined. Uh, He can waive some of the licensing requirements for medical professionals. Say, for instance, you're licensed in another state or your license is recently inactive. You can work in Colorado under the supervision of a Colorado licensed medical, whether that's a nurse or a doctor. Uh, He can order hospitals to stop taking patients if they're overcrowded. He can suspend state statutes that have to deal with the issuance of death certificates even, uh, and burial um, regulations um, should it come to that. Okay, that sounds quite apocalyptic. But again, this is all about the realm of possibility, making sure he has those powers if needed. Right. These disaster declarations are for if there is a disaster. Uh, And COVID-19, while it's not in Colorado yet, it has spread quickly in other places. In Washington, for instance, it went from one case to seemingly 10 deaths overnight. California declared a state of emergency last night. So uh, it is something that they want to be prepared for. We can't say it's not in Colorado. It just hasn't shown up in tests yet in Colorado. Yeah, exactly. What do you think, just briefly, would trigger the need to use these sorts of powers? Is it a certain number of cases or deaths or... 
So they actually didn't discuss that last night. They tabled that discussion for a future meeting. Um, they've Right now, they just want to discuss what legally can the governor do, uh, and then they'll start to talk about what are some of those trigger points to um, make these executive orders go into effect. Does the legislative branch have some kind of break on this, some kind of authority here? Yeah. So first of all, if he declares disaster regulation, the governor, um, then it's in place for 30 days and he can renew it if he needs to. Uh, If the legislature feels like he's overstepped his bounds, they actually have the ability through a joint resolution to end the disaster declaration. Ben Marcus, investigative reporter for CPR News, tracking the state's preparations for COVID-19, the novel coronavirus. We are reporting this week from Colorado Springs. Once again, a warm welcome to new listeners across southern Colorado and northern New Mexico on KRCC. I've gotten to see up close the transformation of downtown Colorado Springs with its glimmering new Olympic Museum. I've seen how much the Springs has grown out. Remember this fact from my colleague Dan Boyce? One of the things that surprises folks often is that the land area of Colorado Springs is literally double the land area of the city of Denver. It's 200 square miles of city here. And while reporting here, I've also become more aware of racial tensions. Issues will broach now with Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers. He's had a long career in public service and justice. He was... Colorado Attorney General for a decade, U.S. Attorney before that, picked by George W. Bush. Mayor Southers, it's nice to see you again. Glad to be with you. Let's start with coronavirus. What are you doing to make sure Colorado's second most populous city is prepared? Well, we're working very closely with the Office of Emergency Management, which is a combined city and county uh, office, uh, the Colorado uh, Department of Health, and of course, the El Paso County Health Department. You know, uh, people have to uh, remember that Uh, epidemiology, which is the branch of medicine that deals with the prevention and treatment of infectious disease, is a core function of uh, public health. And this is exactly what these folks prepare for all the time. Uh, They've been uh, conducting these uh, tests uh, to deal with a new virus like this. Uh, and I think we're well prepared. I think the state of Colorado is well prepared. What about the hospitals in town? Uh, hosp- we have a tremendous uh, hospital system here. We have, of course, uh, UC Health, uh, who conducted some uh, uh, testing yesterday uh, mm. for, you know, if co- folks come in with coronavirus, what are we going to do? Things like that. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, Penrose St. Francis and Children's Hospital, uh, they'll be at a press conference that I'm having at uh, 1030 this morning. Uh, and everybody will talk about uh, the state of their preparations to deal with an outbreak of uh, coronavirus in Colorado. We sit here in Olympic City, USA, and there is a possibility, at least, that coronavirus results in the cancellation of the Tokyo Games. What would that mean for the Springs? Well, it would mean a lot of folks that have trained in the Springs and a lot of folks who work in the Springs with the Olympic Committee would not be traveling uh, to Tokyo. Uh, I don't think it has as uh, significant an impact on uh, the city of Colorado Springs as obviously it does on uh, Japan and and Tokyo. Uh, But given the amount of preparation that's gone in, I can tell you I saw what happened in 1980 when the 
uh, games uh, U.S. didn't participate in would not be not be a good thing. You grew up here. You like to point out there are as many college students in the Springs today as there were people total here when you were a kid. Uh, this means that today housing is tight. Building permits, I understand, only just reached pre-recession levels. That means a rising cost of living. Is that unavoidable in your mind? Uh, to a certain extent, it is. Uh, let's keep. Uh, let's make sure we keep it in perspective. Uh, our affordability index in Colorado Springs is about sixty-nine percent. That means sixty-nine percent of the people, uh, the wage they make, yeah. they can afford a house in Colorado Springs. That's pretty high. Denver's would be about fifty. Boulder would be significantly lower than that. Some place like San Francisco would be eight percent. But would it would it be expected that that will change? Uh, it's going up. There's no question about it. You know, we used to be below the national average in cost of living. We're now right at the national average. But I would challenge you to look at the twenty five most desirable places in America to live. We're the only one that's even close to the national average in uh, cost of living. But our rents are going up. Our uh, uh, housing costs are going up. And you need to do what you can about that. Number one, uh, and I have to tell the anti-growthers this, uh, you need to build new houses uh, because if you don't, then the the unaffordability just skyrockets. Boulder would be a perfect example of that. Uh, So uh, we need just to take care of the high school and college graduates uh, from Colorado Springs who want to live in Colorado Springs, we need to create 5,500 uh, jobs a year. That means growth. And what is the city's role in encouraging the, that kind of construction, you know, making it the right kind of construction so that people aren't spending their lives in traffic Talk to me about what smart growth means to you. That term is used a lot. I'm not entirely sure what it means. Uh, It means doing the best you can to try and figure out uh, what the patterns are going to be and things like that. Um, Obviously, infrastructure is, frankly, my big concern, making sure we have the infrastructure to deal with the growth. And uh, on the basis of the fact that the citizens of Colorado Springs have really stepped up in the last couple of years to deal with infrastructure, that's no longer my major concern. My major concern is that the lack that the state of Colorado is uh, doing such a poor job of investing uh, in transportation infrastructure. As, as I don't know how familiar you are with it, but uh, we well, have it's certainly about, something we've covered a lot. Yeah, and we have about a nine billion dollar uh, transportation deficit in Colorado, and I just don't see the governor or the legislature doing much about it. Uh, they like to blame the fact that the citizens haven't passed a couple of uh, uh, issues. But in my mind, uh, the state needs to look at what the local governments do to, to get success. They go to the voters. They say, this is what we need to do. This is how much it's going to cost. And this is exactly what we're going to do with your money. The state, unfortunately, tends to have kind of a give us a billion dollars uh attitude and and trust us. You think that if the state came out with a proposal for voters that were more specific, you think they'd be more inclined to pass it? Absolutely. They they just have not succeeded statewide tax measures of really any kind lately. Uh, But I'm telling you, for example, the one that just, the the Tabor retention, one that just lost, if they would have said, we're going to retain it for the next 10 years, we're going to put it all in transportation. The legislature doesn't have any discretion in the matter. Remember, under the uh, 
provision that just occurred, the legislature could have changed it the next day because the formula was statutory. And these are the projects the money's going to go to. It would have passed. All right. You heard it from John Southers there. I want to talk about teen vaping. It's an epidemic with especially high rates in Colorado. I understand the Colorado Springs City Council could raise the tobacco purchase age to 21, require licenses for retailers to sell tobacco products. Just very briefly, do you support those two approaches? I do. Keep in mind that's already the federal law, but the concern is the feds don't have the ability uh, on a microscopic level to enforce it. And There's so, also, I think, a slow rollout with some of that. Yeah, and so uh, I think it's appropriate for local governments to have corresponding laws. Okay, so you back both of those measures yes. should the city council pass them. Okay. Uh, the police shooting this summer of a young African-American man, 19-year-old Devon Bailey, exposed tensions around policing in Colorado Springs. Uh, Bailey was shot in the back after running from a police stop. They then found a gun on him. The killing was investigated by the El Paso County Sheriff's Office, and critics felt that was too cozy, saying deputies work closely with police officers. Mayor, in February, I attended a forum at the church where Bailey's body was laid to rest, and there a professor at UCCS and a U.S. Senate candidate, Stephanie Rose Spaulding, was on the panel. I'm here because I live in this community and policing and how we utilize policing in black and brown communities has always impacted me personally, my family, my brothers, my sisters, my nieces and nephews. So this work and accountability, it has to happen. This is a standing room only situation, which means that community is crying out that they want to be respected, that they want to be heard, and they want to participate. Specifically, she and others in attendance want independent police oversight, something akin to Denver's independent monitor. Now, there are lots of different approaches to this, but would something like that be good for Colorado Springs? Not in my personal opinion. I mean, the council may feel differently, but I have a lot of experience in this area. And as I look around the country, first of all, it tips, it's typically the police departments that have historic problems uh, that tend to go towards uh, civilian monitoring as a, frankly, a, a political compromise, uh, and uh, they tend to be very inefficient. Uh, police departments are paramilitary organizations. You need to impose dis discipline quickly uh, and appropriately. And if you look around the country, uh, civilian review boards, including in Denver, tend to slow down the process quite a bit. And ironically enough, uh, if you look very carefully, uh, they result in civilians standing in the way of discipline in situations where officers should be disciplined because the police simply don't understand uh, the importance of, uh, uh, you know, for example, lying in a police department is a heck of a lot more serious offense than uh, lying in uh, the KRCC studios, uh, and um, uh, typically uh, civilians don't have the experience to know the framework of why it's so important in a paramilitary organization uh, to be able to uh, deal with those issues very, very quickly. Isn't it also true, though, that the perception of policing, that it's fair, that cases are reviewed fairly, that that's really important as well, and that civilian oversight might 
increase the community's trust in the process. Isn't that important? Uh, it might have a perception of it, but if it doesn't actually do that, uh, that's my concern. Look, uh, this is the things that have to happen. Number one, you need to recruit a police department which, to the extent possible, reflects the community. Is that true uh, enough in Colorado Springs? Uh, in, in certain areas, I think we, have a, uh, we do pr- a pretty well, uh, good job recruiting Latinos. Uh, we uh, get quite a few women into the department. Uh, black males is, are a problem, but it's a, uh, it's a problem across the country. We just don't get a lot of applicants. Uh, but I think we're moving towards a department that reflects the community. Second of all, you have to train the officers uh, to the best extent possible. I was the head of the police standard, uh, police officer standard training board for 10 years in Colorado. I will tell you the Colorado Springs Police Department on average has uh, better educated officers on the street uh, and better trained officers than virtually any department in Colorado, including the city and county of Denver. I would hold our department up against uh, Denver's any time. Thirdly, any time there's an incident, you have to make sure uh, that if the officers act inappropriately, uh, they're dealt with uh, and... uh, appropriate discipline. If, they're, if they do the appropriate thing, you have to stand behind them. And let me tell you about this incident here. Uh, these officers uh, acted in total accordance with the law uh, and the uh, police, the department procedures. And I will say there are some who disagree with the idea that the law protects those who might shoot someone in the back. This is the fleeing felon law. First of all, you say uh, uh, shoot in the back. Have you watched the breakdown of the tape? As the um, officer's moving in to uh, uh, search the individual, he brings his hands down. As his arms are coming down, the officer's reaching for the weapon. It takes two and a half seconds uh, uh, as, as he's turning with his hands on his, so you can say some people disagree. Uh, any expert who watched this would not disagree. The time has flown by. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Mayor. You bet. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. John Southers, Mayor of Colorado Springs. It's estimated one-third of Colorado's teens feel sad or hopeless, and uncertainty about the future may play a part. Adults tend to roll their eyes and say, come on, every generation had it bad. But school counselors say this generation's existential angst is different. Here's a 15-year-old boy. We could all wake up tomorrow and Putin could have gone crazy and we could all be dead in a nuclear wasteland. We just think that... Everything around us is ridiculous and easily preventable, but we're kind of letting the world fall to ruin. So a lot of us have just given up hope. CPR's Jenny Brundine reports on this added pressure teens feel. Existential anxiety is the latest topic in our series Teens Under Stress. Even if they aren't as nihilistic as the boy you just heard, many teens have this feeling that... Yeah, there's something wrong in kind of the general existential universe. (laughs) 
That was Cassidy. Uh, Rolly, and thank you for being here. You I asked Cassidy and her friend. I'm Zoe, and I'm 18. To come in and help me understand this existential angst many teens feel now. Both girls seem pretty content, but even at their young ages, they've dealt with things past generations never imagined. That sometimes causes anxiety and sadness. After our long discussion, I kind of divided teens' worries about the world into three main buckets— Worry about not coming home from school, worry about their personal future, and worry about the planet. Let's start with the first bucket. I play a soundbite for Zoe and Cassidy to respond to. This is my will. If I die, my best friend, Abby, gets all my clothes. This is a preteen reading the will she wrote during a school lockdown. Eli gets my Michael Scott, that's what she said poster. I ask the preteen this. Do you generally feel safe at school? Not really. Cassidy and Zoe listen, eyes lowered. They can relate. For Cassidy, it was the Aurora theater shootings that left a big impression. I really, really internalized it, and I thought about it for a really long time, and it was like one of the first shootings that I really saw happen close to home, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's something that could happen to me. I go to the movies every time I'm there. I, I like him like, exit sign, exit sign. Looking for exits and hiding places in schools is second nature to many teens. Like walk-in cabinets yeah. and you're like, yep, I could hide in that what? cabinet. Oh, that's the closet. Like, that's where we be. That's where we hide. Wow. I think I had my first like nightmare about school, a school shooting in sixth or seventh grade. They know that teachers would do whatever they could to protect their students, but many teens feel... Is there really much they can do? Can you really protect against, you know, an active shooter that's one of your own students? Teens know that and live with that knowledge every day they go to school. Bucket number two. The second category of worries begins after school ends. Economic shifts have made many worried about their future. As teenager Kai says, many teens have a hard time conceptualizing the future. They're all at the time of their lives. They're kind of looking towards the future and saying, hey, where can I go after this? They're not seeing a future for themselves. They're not really like saying, hey, I could make a place for myself here. They're just not seeing a place where they can go or just don't feel they have merit to bring. Past generations, unlike today's teens, had optimism. They knew that if they worked hard enough, they'd most likely land a job. But today, it's hard to predict what new jobs there will be or how to prepare for them. Some economists predict that by 2030, 40% of today's jobs will be automated. Couple that with the fact that an average four-year college education in Colorado costs more than $100,000. Here's Zoe. There's not a lot of space for trial and error. So Zoe says a lot of high school kids are stressing about figuring out what they want to do for the rest of their lives by the time they're 18. It's just getting harder and harder to kind of find a job that'll pay off your student loans, that'll pay your rent, that'll pay your mortgage, that'll pay for groceries, all of that, and then also that you'll enjoy and that you'll feel like you're where you're supposed to be. The classic routes to finding purpose, stable careers, marriage, families, community, are more elusive now. Whether that job will be there is one thing, but the final existential bucket that's causing even more dread is the shape the planet will be in. That is an unprecedented rate, destroying something which is a resource the entire planet needs just to be able to breathe. There is catastrophic damage on the island. Climate change is one of teens' number one worries. Like very much a looming problem and you're constantly thinking about it. Yes, teens in the past have felt trepidation about the future. Duck and cover. Like nuclear attack or getting drafted to fight in Vietnam. 
But imagine what it's like to enter a world when humanity's impact on the Earth is so profound. One report declared that we could have as little as 12 years to prevent a rise in world temperatures or civilization won't be sustainable by century's end. Becoming an adult in this time... Going for your teenage years is like being drafted into adulthood. That's Zoe. We're kind of taking on a world that has so many issues, so many problems, so many things that kind of feel untouchable, like we can't do anything about them. And it feels like kind of being drafted into taking on this thing that we weren't really aware of until we became teenagers. And now we're becoming adults and having to think about solutions and think, oh, maybe I don't want to bring children into this world because who knows what's going to happen in the next 10, 15 years. Teens like Zoe and Cassidy are angry with adults on climate change. Absolutely. (laughs) You're both shaking your head. It's like we're the frog in water and the water's starting to boil and adults aren't moving to turn off the heat. We're pretending like nothing is happening. To be young now and watch that inaction is terrifying. One young person said to me, Jenny, you've lived most of your life. We haven't, so you can't understand what this feels like for us. Here's Cassidy. It's frustrating because it's reached a point where it really needs to be addressed, and it feels like there's a lack of willingness to address it. And so that feeling of powerlessness is is really a struggle, and, and that feeling of, yeah, like existential dread. The teens say taking breaks from the news helps. So do memes. They want the media to start focusing more on solutions to the problems. But Zoe says she's optimistic because there are so many young people hungering for change. They're aware and ready. To kind of take this into our own hands and become the new political system, become the people who are running the country, eventually connecting with the world, taking on all of the issues. Coming up in the weeks ahead, students who are taking on the challenges of the world and tips for parents on helping with this aspect of teen anxiety. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. Let us know your thoughts about how teens cope with the world they're inheriting. Text tell CPR to 555-888. Again, tell CPR to 555-888. And find all the stories in our series, Teens Under Stress, at CPR.org slash teens. Temple Aaron in Trinidad is the state's oldest continuously operating synagogue. People travel to southern Colorado from across the country to see the historic building. A few years ago, it all nearly came to an end because of financial troubles. Although the community has since rallied, the temple still faces challenges. The Rubin family has been taking care of Temple Aaron since the 1980s. Brothers Randy and Ron spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. The synagogue has been a part of your life since you were kids. Ron, will you share a special memory about what it's meant to you and your family? Yes, it has meant our religious education since we were little boys. One of my most vivid memories, of course, is my bar mitzvah there in 1964. We were the only Jewish family to have bar mitzvahs there for many, many years. And so that is probably the most remarkable thing, um, to have a bar mitzvah at Temple Aaron in the 60s for me. This is Randy. My most significant, I should say, events. Of course, my bar mitzvah in 1962, and my son's bar mitzvah much later, and my daughter's bat mitzvah. And we shared just a lot of enjoyable moments there. The other thing that I think is significant with me is we were the only kids there. 
And sometimes we weren't as tamed, I guess, as the adults, you might say. So this is right. really a part of your growing up. Yes. Significant. Yes. How did this synagogue come about, backing up quite a bit? I understand that it played a role in how Trinidad was established? Yes. The synagogue was established in 1883, with the building having been built in 1889. So it's uh, the significance is that it wasn't actually the oldest synagogue to be built in Trinidad, but now it is the oldest continuously operating it's the oldest in the state of Colorado. In the it's state the, of Colorado. It's the only synagogue in Trinidad. And I understood that there is a Jewish cemetery there as well you as... You are right. Yes, there is. And some of the, the pioneers from the synagogue are buried there, the Jaffas. So the Jewish merchants that showed up there were there in response to the Santa Fe Trail. And they started in the 1860s, and there became a critical mass in the 18, late 1870s. And as Ron said, the congregation was formed in 1883. The synagogue was built in 1889. It was amazing that these Jewish pioneers had such spirit to build this magnificent synagogue on the hill. And it's always been associated with Reformed Jewry. From its beginnings, from the inception of it, it was always... Um, reform and always gave equal status to women as well as men. As a matter of fact, we have an artifact that shows, so it's, it's like a blackboard. I, we've never figured out what it was actually used for. The HLAS, which stands for the Hebrew Ladies Aid Society. And they were the, the great fundraisers, or I should say part of it, for the synagogue and the money for it to be built. So it's clear that the people who were involved in the synagogue and the synagogue itself was a part of the community in Trinidad from the beginning. But even the building itself has a lot of significance. Kim Grant is with the Colorado Preservation Incorporated. He's a board member with the temple and says that the building's architecture stands out beyond Trinidad. The building was designed by Isaac Hamilton Rapp, who was a very famous architect. He designed over 80 buildings in Trinidad alone, including a couple spectacular churches. And later on, he was credited with creating the Santa Fe style of architecture, which is real prominent in and around Santa Fe and northern New Mexico. And the temple is one of the most spectacular buildings he did. Tell me about what the synagogue looks like. Well, it's quite prominent. It's the corner of 3rd and Maple in Trinidad. It has a minaret. It has its red brick. The roof is red. There's stained glass. It's two stories. It's about 7,000 square feet. It has an organ and an organ loft um, where we had a choir when we were growing up. And it's unusual in that it faces a direction that most synagogues don't face. But we don't know why Temple Aaron was, was built with the congregation facing west instead of east. That's fascinating. And with all of these features and history, in 2017, Temple Aaron was added to Colorado's list of most endangered places. Ron, what does that mean for the building? I think what it means for the building is it's being recognized throughout the state of Colorado now as an edifice that is worth saving. We haven't realized a lot from that, except that people now know that Temple Aaron is a significant and historic monument to, to Jews, of especially southeastern Colorado. 
And even though the synagogue has so much meaning for your family and community, at one point there was talk of selling Temple Aaron. Why was that? There was a foundation established by the original rabbi's son. And the foundation, frankly, ran out of money. There was no way to pay for upkeep. It was not a pleasant time. It was, it, this was, it was heart-wrenching, frankly. And to think that the history was going to stop or there would be no history made, was, it, was, it was, a, to say the least, a difficult decision. Luckily, we had a couple of people who said, take it off the market and we will help you keep it as a Jewish institution. And we've had a significant fundraising. Um, we need a lot more, of course, but uh, fundraising to keep it as a Jewish temple. Randy, how do you see Temple Aaron being a part of the Jewish community in Colorado in the future? First of all, we hope to continue to have significant Jewish holiday events there. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Passover are the three that come to mind, possibly Hanukkah. We've also been fortunate to have some programs from the University of Colorado Department of Religious Studies, and we've had two of those lectures. We've also had um, our 130th celebration last year, which spanned two and a half days, that attracted about 100 people from not only Colorado, but really people flew in from around the country. So we're trying to have events there. Plus, when we get to a point, we'd like the city of Trinidad to be able to use it for events too. And Avery, it's not only for Jews, actually. We want to do much, much more outreach to the other congregations, Christian congregations, other congregations in Trinidad, and for educational events, of which we've had a couple. We're trying to reach out to as many people as we can so that it becomes even more significant, not only to Jews, but to non-Jews. Ron and Randy Rubin oversee Temple Aaron in Trinidad, Colorado. Speaking with my colleague Avery Lill, this is the synagogue's organ, which has been there as long as the Rubin brothers can remember. Live from Colorado Springs, it's Colorado Matters from CPR News.